Day Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide. The podcast where the life-changing stuff happens. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and this episode is called If You Can't Stand the Heat, and today's theme is magazines. The first American magazines were published in 1741 by rival printers in Philadelphia, both folded within six months, but by the end of the 18th century, there were over a hundred magazines in the US. The Scots magazine, which was first published in 1739, is considered to be the oldest consumer magazine still in print today. The Cosmopolitan magazine, I don't know why I said it like that, I think it's just called Cosmopolitan, was originally published in 1886 as a family magazine and became a women's magazine in 1965. And in 1990, the satirical magazine Spy sent cheques for 13 cents to some of the world's richest people. The only two people who actually cashed them were the Saudi Arabian arms dealer Adnan Khashoggi and, wait for it, a certain Donald Trump. Your hair is a lot more, a lot neater than mine. No, it's not. That's today's guest, Lucy Cave. Seventeen became the first American magazine created for teens when it was founded in 1944. Sylvia Plath submitted nearly 50 pieces before her first short story was published in 1950. And talking of cool women, Marie Curie ran out of radium in 1921 and a women's magazine crowdfunded $100,000 so she could purchase one gram of it. At Cuban cigar-making factories, there are special people who are appointed to read aloud books, newspapers and magazines to workers during their shifts. What's wrong with a good podcast? They could be rolling their cigars to this podcast. In 1919, Farmer's Almanac began punching a hole in the top left-hand corner of the magazine so that readers could hang it from a nail in their outhouse, providing both reading material and toilet paper. In 2011, Al-Qaeda attempted to launch a magazine with an article entitled How to Make a Bomb in the Kitchen of Your Mum. MI6 hacked it and replaced it with an article about how to make the best cupcakes in America. And finally, men's pants were invented in 1935. Don't know if that can be true, but anyway, I think they mean briefs, like maybe like Y-Fronts or something. Anyway, 1935, and a magazine ad that year praised their scientific suspension and restful buoyancy. What a load of balls. Unless I insist on having a bed in my office, just in case I want to lie down. Yeah, I'm at home. Lucy Cave rose to fame in the 90s as a TV presenter and then as the editor of Heat magazine, often making the headlines herself. She was last week appointed by Bauer Media to the new role of Chief Creative Officer for Podcasts, following a successful stint there as their Chief Content Officer. So I guess what I'm saying is she's also got real big jobs. She's ghostwritten books for, among others, Joey Essex, Jade Goody and Abby Titmus, and recently launched a new podcast Back Then When with her friend Keith Lemon, with guests so far including Emma Bunton, Kerry Katona, Peter Andre and Richard Maidley. Lucy and I talked about starting out, lunchtime drinking, reality TV, her time at Heat magazine, ghostwriting, Simon Cowell, Leonardo DiCaprio, in fact there's quite a bit of name dropping between us in this episode, on screen, off screen, side hustles, reinvention, psychics and fake boobs. But we started by talking about our overlapping career paths back then in the 1990s. That's really mad. Yeah, maybe there's a reason why why the universe has kept us apart. Because we're the same person, (laughs) but you're the one who's doing better and looking better. So it's good. Keep away. (laughs) Don't come any closer. Don't come any closer. Uh, But yeah, how mad. I mean, when I look back on that, I, because I moved to London, I went to university in Sheffield. And then I remember just thinking, 
right, I want to work in media, didn't really know where or what, and just literally going through some directory and phoning up and going, and then found TCC. I'd never heard of it, but it obviously was the children's channel. And I was like, right, can I come and do work work experience? So I went in, did work experience. and then, Was it um, on Grape Street back then yes. still? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was Lovely. my first ever office job was on Grape Street in that same building. It was so cool. And everyone was just so lovely and I think I you know I mean definitely through my earlier years in in media not saying it's all gone to shit but it's like that time I never appreciated just how how good it was and how how hedonistic it was and how you could just you know I mean everyone was just doing everything that they loved getting pissed you know did you drink at lunch I was telling somebody that in those children's channel days I can say this now (laughs) because no one can touch me from those days we used to go to the pub whatever that one was on the square outside Grape Street the crown or something and we would all have at least a pint quite often two pints we I was always pissed every afternoon at work but not in a sort of going to the groucho and having sophisticated wine but just like having a couple of beers like I was out with my mates at the weekend yeah. did you do that totally just gradually drunk all the time yeah I mean yeah. and when I actually started presenting I think we I remember one time you know when we had uh, the sound man in the, in the sound booth and we were filming at, we filmed in St John's Wood I think the children's channel but that um, building called Carlton but it was nothing yes. to do with Carlton television yeah, yeah. that's right yeah and then uh, and the sound man would be like oh anyone want a beer <laughs> in your in your ear when you're on set and it was just like you could just get away with anything at that but then but I, again I just didn't appreciate I mean if someone had said to you these are going to be the best years of your life you'd be like I don't know how you would operate in a different way probably not <laughs> No, I'd have gone, uh, yeah, exactly. What could you do apart from, I think we did enjoy them at the time. You can't say enjoy them more. It's like, that's what we were doing. Yeah. I, d- I met a friend who I had a really, one of my kind of closest friends when I was there was Australian, my friend Jill, and she moved back to Oz not long after I moved to Amsterdam. So we didn't see each other for like 15 years. She came back to London. So we hadn't seen each other for like a decade and a half. We had kids. We we met up and I was thinking, I wonder what she'll look like. And by then I'd lost about four stones since she'd seen me in my 20s. And, and then when I saw her, she had as well. And we were, she was like, how did you do it? I said, I just stopped drinking beer every day, all the time and, eat, and then eating pizza. So I just became a person who wasn't massively unhealthy. And the weight just, so it's really funny that, you know, in our 30s, we looked loads better than yeah. we did when we were bloated, drunk, 20 something people working in telly. But you were on screen. So you you couldn't turn into a complete because you were you, you still are you're a good you're you know you're a good well, looking glamorous gal well you're not currently but I, yeah but it's funny when I look back now so again so TCC went to the children's channel did work experience then I decided I wanted to be a presenter and I think you're quite gung-ho then I like I, I look back and I'm like god I had such balls because I went up to the CEO she was called Amanda something I think and I was like I'd quite like, uh, can I have a screen test to be a presenter, please? And also, can I work behind the screen? Because we've got lots of ideas. And she was like, she said, you need to decide which route do you want to go down? And I thought, why? Why can't I do it all? It's so, I just, you look back and you're like, I wish that obviously gets eroded from you gradually as you get older. But it's, it's a, it's something that I wish you could sort of bottle, you know, that, at that sort of, it wasn't even ambition, really. It was just like, well, why can't I do it? Do you know, I think there was something about the size of that company because I went on to work for smaller companies and much bigger companies, mainly bigger. And there was something about that size. There were about 60 people or something when I worked there. I think I'm guessing it was similar size when you were there because it wasn't long after I left. And there's something about that size of company because it's big enough to be a real place where you really learn stuff and they were really doing things that people were watching but it wasn't big enough that there was a massive hierarchy. So I reckon if we'd been like graduate scheme BBC everything would have turned out, well, they wouldn't have taken us, but if they had. <laughs> been too pissed. <laughs> They'd be like, could you just put your pint down and take this seriously? But I th- I don't think you probably can have that choice and that. And I think it's, I don't know if you found doing that, because you've got a very, it's been really interesting what you've done with your career, that you've managed to straddle kind of doing stuff on a kind of executive part. Because I saw you next but the only time we'd been in a room together where I know we were in a room together was at Bauer Media when I was doing a kind of keynote speech. And then you came onto the stage and I was like, oh, I'm really glad you're here because I've been wanting to get you on the podcast. I thought this will be my way in. <laughs> so then I realised you've got these kind of like proper 
proper jobs and proper company you've got that side of your life as well because I think of you as somebody who's like pundit broadcaster I think of you heat magazine presenting but you've got this other side as well somehow or other I've managed to get someone to employ me in in a serious guise but I still never really take I still never quite believe it or take it seriously you know what it's weird because I think presenting was what I started out doing and what I really enjoyed doing but I guess when I boil it down to what that what I liked about it it was based just being nosy curious whatever you want to call it and asking lots of questions to people and getting to finding out stuff and then even with my heat trajectory because I kind of when I moved over to heat I just did sort of freelance work here there and everywhere and then I got offered a job um a permanent job and I was thinking oh I don't want to this is like a proper you know I want to present uh, I don't know what I thought I was going to be doing in the future but um in the end I took on that role and it, it was it was a deputy editor for news but it was news and stuff so I was mainly responsible for stuff which was basically we love like, stuff we've made yeah, a living his... on stuff <laughs> yeah yeah they don't do that now they've got much more serious than the news um but as time went on and then I got start I guess because I'm a hard worker it's not that I've ever thought oh this is what I want to do I started to get offered more important roles and I always thought hang on I don't want that's not me I don't want to do that but actually I, I guess it's I do enjoy that side of things, but I still don't think of myself as a serious business person. I guess it's just being able to make, you know, being able to sort of bring creative ideas to life, I guess, and getting someone to pay to make them happen. That's kind of what it is. We are the same person, Lucy, I'm telling you, because I felt exactly the same, like the jobs I got. And I remember getting promoted to a really big job during my each time I got pregnant, I got massive sort of career trajectory kind of rise which wasn't what I wanted when you're pregnant you don't want that but you what do you say if a company says you've got this big step up if you say no someone else gets it and then you're working for some dickhead you're like I wish I'd just done it so um but because it's hard for people now obviously the broadcast landscape was completely different and people that's what people could watch and the whole online thing hadn't started but it's kind of hard to encapsulate how important heat magazine was just yeah. like it's hard to encapsulate how important shows like The Big Breakfast were, unless you were there then, because it was such a different world, wasn't it? And Heat was just that, that was just such a part of my life. And and that's why we all knew your face, I think, because you were always, your face was always in Heat. So we all, you must have got recognised all the time because your face was in the magazine we were all reading. Yeah, it was interesting because I yeah so I I'd, I'd obviously go out and do features and do sh- I mean stupid things I'd be sent out to be Simon Cowell's bodyguard for the day not very effectively or go and you know train to do football with Robbie Williams or whatever so yeah so I was in heat and at that time and I'd interview lots of the Big Brother um, contestants when they came out which Big Brother and Heat really went hand in hand mm. in terms of the success but yeah Heat was selling like seven hundred thousand copies a week uh, at its height. And so to be part of that world was obviously quite massive. And I knew that I knew that people recognised me from it when I was in a kebab shop late at night. I think it was about three o'clock in the morning one Saturday and someone shouted, Oi, heat at me across the road. <laughs> and I was like, oh, it's good job I don't work for Trout and Salmon Weekly or something. But uh, but yeah, I was like, God, maybe I need to actually move beyond just heat. Like people were just thinking that that was, that was my name. I, had, I did sort of become become the brand for a little bit but did you find in that because whenever you listen to Adam Buxton talking about the Adam and Joe show which was obviously um, contemporaneous with that time and you just think what they were doing and how they were doing it and there was a sort of because I think in a way do you think there was a freedom because it was pre-social media so you weren't going to get trolled for doing something daft and heat the most that could happen is the response could come in kind of well not even via email or just about via email at that point it was only just the start of that was it makes it sound like we're stegosauruses but you know I know it really is quite scary when you think about it there was no no it wasn't even by email it was people would write letters letters yeah we used to get sacks of letters that I remember at the children's channel there were people whose job it was just to go through sacks and sacks of actual cards and letters yeah you people genuinely write letters about who they like who they didn't and actually they were really funny letters we had a letters page then and the readers themselves were really funny so some of them were just funnier than the you know than the magazine and you're right we you we were kind of printing money really and but we would experiment and just do random things like someone would have a conversation and it was that genuine water cooler moment you know someone would have a conversation about something and then the editor would be like okay let's just put that in the magazine 
Um, so it was just, you know, any silly. I mean, it got a bit extreme once when I think I said I'd gone out on a night out and some guy chatted me up. And I pretend, and he was awful. And I pretended my name was Janine Machine, and I was a, and I did, you know, I was a fitness expert. And then Mark, the editor, was like, "Oh, let's create a character for Janine Machine. She can be in Heat magazine." And I was like, "This is going to be, this is we're kind of eating ourselves now." But you know, there was genuinely, and I think Ricky Gervais took the piss out of it in extras. But genuinely, some celebrities did phone up, um, pretending they weren't them to be put in Spotted, which was our sort of. I remember know, Spotted, it, yeah, it loved it. Double page spread, which was essentially, which now probably is something you <laughs> shouldn't do because it's stalking. stalking yeah, it? but we I loved think, it. It's the time you could stalk online, wasn't it? You were yeah. the you were the you were the early Twitter stalkers. Exactly. So, yeah. and it would be Spotted having an argument while eating a bag of chips outside the Curzon Cinema on Shaftesbury Avenue or whatever. But some of them would phone up and because if they were lesser celebrities, it was quite a big, you know, Heat was huge and Heat was genuinely a sort of mark of who was who. It was and the nearest it was to Instagram back in the day. Like that was yeah. your kind of shop window in the same way that you would now if you're a reality TV star use Instagram. Yeah, totally. And it was a Bible for people. People would wait until Tuesday. It's kind of really weird to think now you wait for any news about any celebrities until a Tuesday, but people did. So, because because there was no other way to get it. So we would have exclusive interviews with people. If there'd been a big story that everyone was obsessed with or a TV show, people would know that on Tuesday they would get everything that they needed to know and an analysis of it in a funny way. I remember when we launched Heat World, and again, we launched it in about 2006, and, we, and the banner underneath where it said heat world was open nine to five and it's like it's the internet but it, but again it was like yeah we'll do our first story at nine and after and our last story at five and that's it then we shut and but it was that didn't seem weird at the time and now you're like oh and did it the um because reality tv i worked at mtv when the real world and road rules were really massive and i remember i was working for a production company in amsterdam and we, which became part of Endemol. And we knew that Big Brother was coming out over there. So it's before it launched here. And then when I joined MTV, I remember saying to them, like, I'm relocated to London. And I remember saying to them in the New York kind of creative office, saying, oh, there's this show in Holland that is very like real world, or at least heavily inspired by real world. Because at the time, the, the MTV shows were the only reality shows, mm. and they weren't big over here. They were really massive in Holland because it was one of the only English-speaking broadcasters there. And I remember them just saying, no, you know, it's just a little Dutch. You know, before we knew that Holland were going to be the greatest exporter of globally successful yeah. formats. And they didn't do anything about it. And I always thought all those years that I worked on, you know, first of all, Big Brother, then Survivor, Real World... I always just thought, and there's no, there was never any kind of legislation against it, and all these. I don't think anyone realised it was going to be such big business. But did you? When did? What did you think when when Big Brother first came out? I re, well, I remember when a we were all, that's all we talked about in the office, and I remember thinking, this is amazing. This is actually my job that just to watch because it was a live stream. I think on E4, and you could just it was sit amazing, and, watch and there'd never been live stream. Like we weren't used no. to the concept of live streaming no. then either, which no. was in its own right exciting. Watching somebody fart and snore. I mean, nothing really exciting. went on, but it no. was like you're going, oh, hang on, nasty Nick's going to the toilet. Yeah, well, someone I mean, put their arm above the duvet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. We, we obsessed, and obviously we had to document everything minute by minute because we had the time to do that, and that's kind of that was our job. I remember when the editor, it was Mark Frith who was editing at the time. We always used to. Heat was really on the rise because we'd started to put celeb, you know, get interviews with celebs and ask them real questions rather than it being quite saccharine and like, this is my new bedroom and blah, blah, blah. So we'd had a big interview with Victoria Beckham, who'd answered loads of very sort of personal but silly questions all about her relationship with David Beckham. And so it was very much, it turned into this is celebrities as we've never seen them before. But then when Big Brother was on and it was at such a brand new show and it was these real people... And you could kind of connect with them and think, am I like that? I know someone like that. This is quite weird that I'm watching them on TV. Mark said we're going to put Randy Andy on the cover. And he was the first person, Randy Andy, obviously. I mean, he wasn't really that Randy in, in the reality TV terms these days. <laughs> Don't by our actually... gentle standards back yes. then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he, so we put him on the cover when he'd got evicted. And I think the publisher at the time was like, this could be a real risk. Are you sure? And he said, we, I, 
you know, his, his gut instinct was always really good and it just skyrocketed. And so from that moment on, it was like, these are our new celebrities. The Big Brother was our massive moment. So everything was all about, really, Heat was kind of leading up, like going, when's Big Brother starting? Because that was the, that was our biggest time because you could talk to the families. They were people that you, you know, that had lives like either like we've never seen before like when jay goody was in there and they she, you kind of shone a, shone a light on someone that you might not ever sort of meet normally if you're sort of middle class but in a brilliant way because you kind of put they put them in this sort of this room and house with loads of different types of people to see how they would react with them and how how they would get on or or not get on and so there was just this wealth of stories to tell you know pictures to unearth family members to talk to, um, relationships that they built in the house. It was fascinating. And it was just, you know, that was our bread and butter really for a long, long time. And we were, which I remember when I was a student, you know, in the late 80s, and I think this morning had just started and you were just getting those shows that were a bit more an insight into what people chatting as opposed to something really curated or fiction. And I remember thinking through uni, I'd love to watch a show about people doing what we're all doing at uni. I'd love to watch a show about like that. And, th- and then realising when it all happened, like, yeah, that's the sort of thing I really, we obviously did all want to watch that kind of thing. Yeah. And that's why it came at such a good point. And did you, because th- at the time people weren't really aware, I've written and spoken a lot about this. Obviously we've seen the other side of reality TV and the kind of detrimental effect it's had on some people. And yeah. I know like with Love Island now, they're trying to give them like social media coaching and 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 help them not get, annihilated if they don't become one of the rare ones who who for whom it becomes life-changingly positive and we didn't really have a did you have any sense of that with with that it, back in the day when we're because we were all me too you know working where I worked we were all making money on the back of people who didn't really know what they were letting themselves in for I think it was a very different landscape and I think we didn't have any sense of that I think you know, we, I think it just we, felt like fun, didn't it? At that point, yeah, it just felt yeah. like kind of proper yeah. an opportunity, like they're getting a chance to be famous. And I the think love. they felt like it or were, were told that they had to feel like it. So therefore they didn't complain. If you think about when they'd come out of the Big Brother house, Davina would always whisper in their ear and she'd always whisper, it's pantomime because they would come out. Essentially when they would come out, it was like real life trolling before social media because was, people would yeah. be ha- holding up banners. Some of them, quite horrible you know they were you know this baying crowd some would cheer some would be you know there'd be so horrible things they say but Davina would say look it's pantomime and it would be you have a snapshot of this then you'll do an interview with me then they'll have the glory of lots of different media outlets wanting to photograph them so they'll get lost in that a little bit and and I guess it would be then let's hope there's no one turns against them but obviously as time went on you look at what happened with Jade when she went back into that house um you know and there was newspapers and magazines saying all sorts of stuff about her even when she was in the house the first time I remember Graham Norton dressed up as a pig on his show I I remember I know and she in the press would call her like openly say call her a pig on the front of the newspaper which she would never like like, now you go how is that even how did that even happen I think now it just gets so amplified. I I listened, I don't know if you listened to the podcast, there's something about Miriam, which was based on that show, which had a terrible effect on the kind of person concerned. And and again, now you look at that and you're like, how could you possibly use a trans woman as bait for a bunch of like randy kind of straight men and expect that as a reveal to be anything other than detrimental. But as I say, I'm very much part of the problem. You know, I, I was, I'm someone who's got a lot of these shows out around the world and, and I'm definitely, so I'm not, I'm not doing it in a judgmental way, but I look back at it and I think it wasn't, I didn't feel at the time we're doing something really exploitative, but it's okay. I just didn't feel it was, it didn't seem to be exploitative. It just seemed to be the next generation of like game shows or breakfast shows it didn't feel like something that could have such a dark side no it didn't and I think it it because it felt record or the producer it felt like that celebrities or people on tv had come from such a sort of polished um protected world and they were sort of held up up in high esteem that it was more a around leveling the playing field a little bit and so anyone reading would feel like actually they are like me you know they make mistakes like me and they felt like it was okay to sort of to see them in that in that way but again you're probably still not thinking of them as as proper human beings I mean it's 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 fascinating when you when you look back on the sort of trajectory of how 
how that because it did start you know when we were at heat it was all it was all the whole point of it was 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 fun and it was kind of laughing with people rather than laughing at people and then I think a lot of magazines because of the success of heat it, it gave birth to loads of different types of magazines then you've got social media and then it just becomes everyone is a journalist everyone's looking at these people everyone's got something to say about these people it just then didn't become funny anymore yeah and also I think people hadn't realized because there hadn't been reality tv we hadn't seen what it was like for a member of the public to get famous and then have a really bad time of it and be hated because it simply hadn't happened and anyone before who was in the public eye who'd been hated had sort of got into it more knowingly that was their job it maybe had been controversial deliberately so we didn't have those pantomime kind of characters until big brother started to happen and did you on those um when I think what it takes, so those days you did things like being Simon Cowell's, you know, bodyguard, you could have maybe stopped him getting the latest round of um of fillers if you'd done it now. <laughs> what is he doing? I, know. I, know. I thought I thought someone was mucking about with I didn't think that was real footage. I was like, I oh, know it actually is the real thing. But anyway, never say never. We'll all probably look like that in about three years. So I'll pipe down. Um, but those days, what were the do you you must still look, I look at some of the things that happened at MTV and I'm like, oh, that was just such you know, the people you sort of end up partying with and the encounters you have and I remember being ending up in a really small bar at the Royalton Hotel in New York after one of the MTV awards and it was me and me Goldie and Madonna were the only three people in it at one point and I look back and I'm like that's just weird like imagine that and I and, and numerous of those weird things where you're don't even think you're at an after party you're just trying to get back to your hotel room but you must have countless of those kind uh, of moments I mean mainly with reality TVs stars so they're not that exciting but there was one moment when I went to the after party of the beach um so Leon, Leonardo DiCaprio obviously is in it and I somehow or other I was and you always hear about these things and never think that actually happens but basically this Leonardo was leaving I was like oh where's he going he's not going to come and chat me up after all and uh and then some guy came over to me who was obviously in his entourage and went Leonardo's having a, a gathering at his hotel do you and your friend want to come he basically just invited loads of girls no boys were allowed <laughs> and my friend and I got to this hotel thinking oh and uh my friend um was working for the Sun newspaper at the time and he was downstairs in the hotel foyer and he was like this was before he actually this was when I was at um at the ch- at trouble and my friend was like if you see anything, please, can you let me know? Because I'm not allowed up there. And I was like, okay, and I wandered up there, got into this party. And actually, there was a few boys allowed, but they were all famous. So they're like Mick Hucknall was in there just following him around. I remember just thinking he was really like going, hi, like really trying to get Leo to be his mate. And all saints were in there. I remember, and I knew all saints anyway, so I was chatting to them for a bit. And then... I think I was just obsessed with Leonard because he had this big suite and I was going in his bathroom and me and my friend were taking pictures of his like of his his kind of wash bag because he had <laughs> like he had like two big packs of condoms in there. I was like, ooh, and anyway, we we're just taking photos. <laughs> big condoms then, or big packs? Well, no big packs. He had like okay, lots. Just checking. So you're obviously just gonna get lucky. <laughs> and then he went into the bathroom for ages with Nicole Appleton. And I didn't really think anything of it. And then on the way home. I'd phoned my friend going, oh, yes, I've just been at this party. I know you wanted me to tell you what happened. So I was reeling off all this boring stuff that's probably of no interest to him whatsoever, like his wash bag. And then I went, oh, and he went in the bathroom for a little while with um, about 30 minutes with Nicole Appleton. I mean, I think they're probably getting on. I don't know what's going on there. Blah, blah, blah. Woke up the next morning. From page page. Sun. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> I'm, like, oh, I'm just giving this soup. I didn't even realise. Um but uh, my mate was like, yeah, brilliant. Okay, so can you get me any more? And I was like, that wasn't, you know, um, that's obviously kind of how it happens. But uh, but yeah, so there was that that party. And then I normally end up, I'd always find myself at the Brits, but ending up with really bo- like with Jedward, because I just found them really amusing. <laughs> so but, well, all the people you could be with, like there's Katie Perry, Justin Timberlake, and then you'll go back to your mates the next day and they'll go, oh, who are you talking to? I'll be like, Jedward for about four hours at the bar. <laughs> But when you find someone you get on with at those things as well, I always, my daughter, who's now 22, started going to awards stuff with me to the tail end of me still working for Viacom, who now own MTV. And she just, just before I left that job to do what I now do full time, was just at the point she realised it would be quite cool to be able to go to things like that. And she's like, so her last one she went to, and, and she loved talking to all the kind of big, big names. But I always used to think, you know, anyone who was surrounded by everybody, 
I didn't want to go and be the one talking to them. I'd always be like, I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to be an arse licker talking to them. I'd rather, I I just didn't want to do it. And so I would always, yeah, keep a step back and just talk to someone else. Talk to the the least, you know, the least famous person in there. Yeah, talk to their driver. Because I'd be like, I don't want to, I don't want to be one of, and also all that, you know, the sort of sycophancy that goes with that as well. And you're like, I don't want to be another desperado in the entourage. I was like that. And that's why actually I wouldn't have been very good at doing news because as a news reporter, you had to go up and up to people and you're kind of actively going and asking them for stories. Whereas when I was sort of features or heat interviews, you're kind of, they've agreed to do an interview with you. So then it's okay for you to, do you know what I mean? But, but yeah, Leon, Leonardo, I think I was playing hard to get deliberately not trying to talk to you him. You weren't so going to go in the bathroom yeah, with him. Yeah, Obviously no, he wanted I mean, you I'm to. Yeah. He was like, if you won't, Lucy, I'll go with Nicola Hilton. <laughs> Second <laughs> choice, but you know, make do. Namaste, motherfuckers. The transition from that kind of socially and culturally, the world changed so quickly. And like you said at the start, you know, that kind of hedonistic, I think we just thought my, like work and home just all felt like a big kind of party. It didn't. I don't remember thinking there's a big delineation between who I hang out with and what I like doing and what I do at work. It's like the same thing. But then everything did seem to change a bit. And like, obviously, it is a very different world now in terms of how people consume stuff and how they get their kind of fix of celebrity and culture. But it meant that people like us also had to adapt quite a bit. And and how, so how has that gone from where you were then, that kind yeah. of crazy kind of trouble, then heat sort of world and being very much part of that kind of 90s, noughties pack of kind of people running with the cool kids so what yeah. what what's kind of the, the two decades then between then and now you've obviously still been really successful but how's that been for you then that kind of constant reinvention and and change so I think the transition for me from you know running the magazine or or working at heat when it was at at, at that sort of high point where anything goes then I ended up I've ended up ghostwriting quite a lot of stuff for celebrities actually so I, yeah, ghost I saw that write. when I was researching you yeah so are you allowed to say some of yeah the people yeah you've done that I for? mean it, I've got quite a niche for myself you will find so I ghost wrote Jay Goody's books um Jerry Essex I've been inside the brain of Jerry Essex and survived wow um Charlotte Crosby from Georgia Shore and Danny Dyer as in the daughter Danny Dyer when she was on Love Island so and it all came about quite, it's quite strange thinking because I was doing it when I was first at Heat and it was mainly because I'd got on with Jade when I interviewed her and this and she was one of the first reality stars to do a book. Obviously, Jordan Price was probably the first and then Jade, you know, her agent was very savvy and wanted to capitalise on her popularity and because I'd interviewed her and we got on and Jade obviously admittedly wouldn't be able to write her own book herself um the agent sort of said will you do the, will you do the book and I didn't even know what I was doing to start with and it was I had to keep it very separate to heat because essentially she was giving me every every piece of information every bit of detail about her whole life it was like a therapy session really she would come around sit on my bed laugh cry I mean there was a lot that had gone on in that girl's life. So there was there was no sort of shortage of stories. Um, but yeah, and she would just like my flatmates would be like, oh, Jade's here at the front door. And she'd just trot upstairs and just sit with me for hours. And I'd just ask her loads of questions. And then I'd have to, but then I think the thing with ghostwriting is you then have to become them. <laughs> like as in you've got to write as them, but it still has to make sense. And how is that? I've always thought you didn't write one called Spare, did you, as a ghostwriter? Oh, no, I mean, yeah. I was interviewed about that the other day. I was like, that's it's slightly different. I've done Joey Essex and it's not quite the same as Prince Harry. But I mean, that... that Can you imagine what that one's been like? He's been sewn up like a kipper, I reckon. But anyway. Yeah, I know. And he's given so much, you know, actually. What fascinates me about that is that whenever we we I've done books with celebrities you obviously you've got they've got to just give everything and then you go okay I'll write it down and if there's bits you don't you when you look at it in the cold light of day you might say don't think that story should go in don't think that should go in lawyers will take that out which is what amazes me about the Prince Harry book because no one's taken anything out at all I know and <laughs> he's not even seeming very media trained in the interviews and I thought the Netflix one was very well curated but since I thought yes. my god you know even when I've been a you know what it's like when you're a pundit or you're just a person with a voice you know how to curate yourself in yeah. such a way as to not give sound bites that could go against you and it's like blimey yeah. but um and very bad name he's given to ginger people right now which I object to but um so what's it so for anyone who hasn't 
it, well, most people won't know what it's like to be a ghostwriter. So I guess we all assume that you get, you have to have the trust that that person will spend hours yeah. and hours with you just downloading and you've got to have enough rapport with them that they properly put their guard down. So yeah. you've got to be someone who elicits that from them. Yeah. And then you take it and write it up with your, and turn it into sort of prose. Yeah. yeah. So basically you go kind of interview the hell out of them over the course of however many weeks. And that would have been on a dictaphone or something back then because you wouldn't have had an yeah. iPhone to do it on. Yeah. No, it would have been on, it's on a dictaphone. So I'd have reams and reams of all these tapes and then I'd have to transit. And that was before you could have something that transcribes things yeah, for you. No as well. so AI service no, then. No. no. So you're literally although, doing that yourself. Yeah. Although it. those transcription services now, if it had been Jade, Joey, or even when I've done it recently with Charlotte because she's from Newcastle they get it all completely oh, wrong they anyway, do. So you end, yeah you end up having to go what they didn't say that yeah um they like the but, Queen's English don't they on those yeah. they'd have been fine with Prince Harry but yeah <laughs> they you been weren't totally doing that one as we've established no, no sadly not um but yeah so you you just and then you've got to turn it into a story and I think you can only do it if you like the person because I've been asked to do books for other people I mean now you've got to write about 80,000 words you've got to have they got 80,000 words of interesting stuff in them and then you've got to like them to try and make turn it into something warm and interesting and you know because you're you're writing on their behalf but I I did really enjoy it and I think that's like that's that's kind of the part I enjoy about I was going to say interfacing with celebrities. I've never used that term at all. But that's what I like about any sort of celebrity relationships I've had is just getting them to sort of open up and asking them questions and turning it into. So I think I've enjoyed that probably more than than writing a piece for a magazine. I think it's also really unusual that people in the face of celebrity act normally. And if you're someone who can and likes to, and those are the nicest conversations I've ever had in relationships I've ever built up is where it's kind of been irrelevant where they were in the celebrity sort of side of things. And I think people, are, it's so rare that they get that at a certain point because everyone's blowing smoke up their ass. Everyone's using their stories against them. And if they can have their guard down, it's actually quite a precious thing. I, I met Jade a couple of times and I always had a massive soft spot for her. And I always just thought she's just a very vulnerable young woman who's not been equipped with what she needs to cope with what she's unleashed and I never thought there was any malice in her and anything she did that wasn't wasn't helpful to her own image was out of ignorance not out of malice and people really mistook the two I thought so I always thought there was a mass well there was a massive vulnerability to her wasn't there and that yeah yeah. and did that come across when you were so when you're doing those kind of conversations I'm guessing you're looking for those nuances you know you don't want to just get the bit that everyone can get in the tabloids you're trying to get something quite a different quality to their personality as well as their stories yeah I think that I learned the most out of spending time with her or spending time with any of them when you're writing a book was constantly having to say how were you feeling at that point exactly what was going through your head at that point because you've got to make sure you're getting Every it's not just them telling a story. It's got to go into a lot more sort of depth to that. Um, so and Jade was, I mean, Jade was brilliant. She just, it, it's incredible the kind of stuff that actually happened to her. You could not make it up in terms of her upbringing, and then and it just continued and continued. You know, dramas followed her around from where wherever she went, and it continued right up until the moment that she died. Um, Joey Essex was slightly. <laughs> I mean, I love him. He was a bit more challenging because he just had the attention span of a gnat. So I'd go round to his house and he'd concentrate for about half an hour and then the rest of the time he'd be like a teenage boy wandering around his bedroom, looking at himself in the mirror with his hand down his pants, you know, going, oh, can we finish now? That's a hard 80,000 words if you've got to do that like 70 times to get anything. And do you, when you're inhabiting their head then, because I even find it, even with things, you know, if it's the podcast or if it's whatever it is, and you just immerse yourself in that person, in my case, for a few hours and you listen back and you research. And even then you get very in their world and you're doing that times a thousand when you're going. And so does that like someone like Jade, where it is actually quite a tra- I mean, definitely, as it turned out, a very tragic story. And do you does it impact you then when you're living and breathing, kind of being that person for a bit? It's funny because I think well, what impacted me more with her was that she would sometimes she like I said earlier, it was like a therapy session. She would sometimes be sat in tears in my room, you know, remembering something about her childhood or, you know, her dad, obviously 
you know, I remember she was talking about how she found out her dad had died. Her dad was a heroin addict. She didn't was never very close to him, but she found out that he died in the toilet in a Kentucky Fried Chicken or something. And you could t- tell it was still very raw with her. Same with Joey, actually, because he talked to me and he only talked about it once because he hadn't dealt with it. And I think since then, and I know since then, because he did a program on it, he's gone to therapy, but his mum committed suicide. So there's moments when, and he was in tears talking about it, and I had to ask him about it, and it's, you want to just go and give them a massive hug and say, don't worry about it. You don't have to talk about it. But when it's, when you know that it's part of their story, you've got to kind of keep, keep on and keep asking them. So that was quite, yeah, it was quite tough at times, but I think as long as you, they felt that they were in a safe environment and, and they trusted me, that was the point. But again, that's quite, it's quite strange that I, I managed to straddle working at heat and doing that because I was then had to be, I then had to be quite protective about, because obviously we've got a news team who are writing, going, Oh, this Jade's been off doing this. And I'd be like, that doesn't come from me. It's like trying to keep that trust, isn't it? And knowing also that you are a friend, but you're not a friend. Like you're, you're you're trying to do it. You're sitting there as if your mates chatting, but at the end, and it's with their permission, obviously they want the book out there. And do you as a business model, as a ghostwriter, do you make money while you sleep out of those books then? So you want a deal as a ghostwriter, I'm not asking what you get paid, where you get paid a fee to ghostwrite, or do you get a percentage of the book? Um, At the very beginning, I think the first book I did, I got royalties and then agents got savvy. I bet they did. Yeah, that's not the case now. You get as a go- I mean, ghostwriters of the the fees that used to command versus the fees that ghostwriters get now are kind of they're they're minimal now. Um, same as when you think back to when I look at celebrity photos and paparazzi pictures that we used to put in Heat magazine. You know, the value of those once upon a time. Victoria Beckham. I remember. I think Romeo Beckham when he was born. <laughs> I think Heat paid ninety thousand pounds for the first picture of wow. Romeo Beckham. Nowadays, you'd pay like. 200 quid and also 90,000 pounds back then my first job was 11,000 pounds a year when I first started working on the children's channel and I think that's what most people were earning at that level 11 12,000 a year so 90,000 yeah that's that's a princely sum and do you and so now when you look at because I love the fact that well first of all I love the fact that people that people are realizing what we've always done which is reinvent bit of a hustle over here try that I mean you had a side hustle before side hustles were a thing I've always had side hustles before we knew what they were called and I love the fact that you don't need to pigeon you don't need to choose you don't need to go right I'm going to be a serious person in a proper job or I'm going to be a writer you can just try and get shit out there and see what happens so what is your ideal because you've got the podcast with Keith Lemon that you started a few months ago was that when did that start and just tell people we'll we'll put um, a link to that but tell people about that a minute so so yeah I've known Keith or Lee Francis as his real name is who's he's kind of blended into the same person over the years but I've known him for years we used to have the same agent when I started out doing presenting um and then I'd sort of bump into him at loads of different things and then he turned he was avid Merion first and then he became Keith Lemon and when he was Keith Lemon I think it was at the time that I had exactly the same bright blonde sort of sun in type hairstyle as he did so he used to go around saying that I me and him were kind of style twins and then I've just known him for a long time hung out with him socially a bit and then we just had a conversation I think it was in lockdown and I was just like have you ever done a podcast and he said no don't listen to podcasts don't no interest in and I said I think there's something in going back in time because again, it's like us talking about the nineties and that, that whole, everyone has got, you know, that moment in time makes people just feel a bit warmer and fuzzier and, you know, everything was good, but then. And also my daughter loves that is really fascinated by the nineties. Like she, she, all my stuff I'd kept from my MTV days, trainers, little nice little t-shirts and stuff. She's got it all. She wears it all. And she's fascinated by that period of culture. So I also think the generation below us, are massively so the gen z's are pretty interested by it as well yeah and so we started talking about it and then that got him interested and then and he just suddenly went oh can we do it in a time machine because he's obsessed with back to the future so i was like well we can pretend we're in a time machine if you want so that's how it was born so then it's, it's called back then when we pretend to go in this time machine and then he and then land at a moment and go and pick up a copy of a publication which is essentially an old copy of heat and then go where are we oh it's september the 2nd 2002 who's on the cover oh it's the cheeky girls and then we sort of relive the stories and the tv shows and the songs and stuff that we all, were all into and then we bump into someone from that time but they have to pretend 
they're still in that time. So it all gets. I just listened to Richard Maidley, who took the role play to a whole level, didn't he? I think you guys were like, could we have a little bit of like something that isn't? You're like, we like a little bit of an insight into what's actually going on. (laughs) Yeah, he was like, am I still in character? And I was like, you lived your whole life in character. I mean, the great thing about him is when we did the. He's unchanged. He's unchanged. And we did the, is it Richard Maidley or Alan Partridge quiz? And most of the time he thought it was Alan Partridge when he'd actually said it. So that, they, um, but yeah, it's just, it's just really fun. And I think, I think, I mean, you must feel like this as well. I guess with podcasts, you can't go into it. And some people have made massive fortune out of podcasts, but I think you've got to do it. If you just, it's got to be a subject that you really enjoy because it is, it's got to be a passion project first and foremost. They're usually a slow burn as well, podcasts. And I think you you start to realise, I was about to say the halo effect, which is like you saying you interface with celebrities. We're both going full wanker for this. But I think there is a sort of a, (laughs) that you start to realise that the thing you do, first of all, every conversation you have leads to something. So it's like really, you have an interest in conversations with people you wouldn't talk to. So I always love like the conversation now with you. I always love the conversations, but things, come out of it or someone will hear it or random things so it's definitely not the same as getting a book out or getting up on stage or doing live at the Apollo for me you know it's like it's a it's a weirder thing and you're right you have to love it but you get amazing I mean as someone who's been doing this podcast for 18 months and I do most I've got someone who books for me but I do a lot of my own bookings you've definitely got the little black book that we'd all like when we start a podcast I mean you've had an amazing some of the guests you've had there yeah well got your good me and him I think he's probably got more of a black book I mean, he got Emma Bunton, who was obviously the one of the best ones that we've had on. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, Everyone, I'll put the link to that one in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, she was she, and I think the good thing is that they really have enjoyed it because it's not it's not particularly probing. It's just and it's quite not random. their usual interview, is it? And and I love no. the bit before they come on. I love that bit where you're remembering. You're like, oh my god, is that the year that that launched? And yeah, you can't. We get the chronology wrong, don't we? In our sort of selective, subjective beer adult memories. <laughs> And then you hear it and you're like, oh, that's what it did. So that you're going to, so your life consists now of a real job. Yes, a real media, actual job. Yes. A real actual job, because I've seen you being a real actual senior person <laughs> in a real company. Um, and it's always weird when I go back and do those things, because I used to be a person in the actual company. And I usually go in and a bit of me is like, oh, I kind of miss it because there's the camaraderie. And then within an hour, I'm like, no, yeah, fuck it. No, I, don't it. Want, Bye. I don't want to bother. Sometimes <laughs> people who book me for those try to act like a boss, not in your case at Bauer and I'm like I don't work for you like stop telling me yeah. what to do yeah. I've just come in under turn so you've got a real job you, you're yeah. doing the podcast you're obviously still doing loads of like media punditing you're still a face and a voice that people find relevant want to hear from you've got a kid now who's yeah, two how, now two uh, yeah two kids and how old yeah. are the kids that... so Ridley is seven and Piper is four I have to keep remembering yeah so you've got little, fairly little kids to be, and a dog yeah, to be managing. Yeah. And what else? So what would, in your ideal world, what would the sort of, you know, little portfolio of what it is to be Lucy Cave be? Do you know what? I actually, doing the podcast made me realise how much I really like presenting and I hadn't done that properly for ages. I've done media punditry, you know, when you're going, oh, yeah, and I remember when, blah, blah, blah. but just pissing about yeah. <laughs> and interviewing people. I really enjoyed that. Um, so, but that it, that feels like that's ticked that sort of box for me. So, I think we've talked about whether we could take it on tour because I think actually that's where you make the tour, money for sure. Yeah, that's where yeah. you make the money, and also key that lends itself to you could have like a steps performing if they were the guest, you know, and you you could get people to come in and bring embarrassing photos of themselves that's and a great idea and it takes the pressure off whoever it is doing a bit of a reunion thing because they've only got to do a bit of a turn, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. exactly. So that's that's sort of being talked about. That would be be the dream and I do you know what I've realized is even though I work for a big company and you've just mentioned side hustles I think it is so important to just have pockets of different things that 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 scratch different itches for you do you know what I mean because obviously I've got to pay the mortgage and my job I'm lucky it's a really interesting job but there's bits that I can't do in that job that I think you can find other ways to do and I think it's just trying to make sure you carve out time to be able to do that really do you think it's something, because I look back at doing it when I when my kids, my kids are sort of adults now, but when they were younger and I was a single mum by the time my kids were the age your kids are, and I sort of look at it and I still did have side hustles and I still did have a big job. And I guess something must make you want to, I guess, do you think it's just that we're wired like that? And Because I don't make myself have side hustles. No. I can't help myself. 
yeah it's it's down to being sort of it's that sort of curiosity and also you probably get a bit bored otherwise you know? I get fidgety really yeah. quickly I, I yeah. always find literally three years into anything and whatever it is and however well it's going about three years in I realize I'm starting to get a little bit like mm, you know what, yeah. what can I do differently and if you hear it, it, it takes all it takes is you meeting someone or going oh that I really like that I really like to do sometimes it's a case of going I really like to do some stuff with that person and Mm. then that opens up conversations and it's not really it's not planned and I don't think any of my career trajectory has ever been planned but it's more you've just got to be I get quite excited by things you know and people and go oh why do we do this probably overexcited but I think it's probably a bit of that and trying to explore that excitement to see if it leads anywhere really well you get excited and then you do something about it so it's easy yeah. to have those and actually some of those conversations I I had a great chat with another um, comic yesterday and a couple of things that came out of that I'm like I'm so glad I sat with him for two hours and had that conversation because yeah. it's totally triggered things that I wouldn't have thought about on my own and given me the kind of conviction that I could maybe do them and then some and I think if you are too planned you wouldn't take the risk if you had a game plan with everything you're trying to do lots of things you'd be like well this is idiocy why would I do this but actually those are the things that sometimes end up becoming the thing that matters and out of yeah sorry Lucy I interrupted you but no I was gonna say I my only game plan has ever really been I've been obsessed I always used to go and visit psychics and go and go oh because I remember when I was younger I used to go am I going to meet anyone Great. That means I can just carry on getting pissed, and so I don't have to worry about it. You know, I, it was. It's one of. I. I and that just turned loved... out to be the case. You did get <laughs> did. pissed, and you did end up meeting somebody. Yeah, I did. So, so, so it was fine. Yeah. But but I have taken it too far in my sort of obsession with psychics in the past, and I actually once went and because I used to want to have bigger boobs. So I've now given up on that idea. But you know when everyone was having boob surgery in the nineties, big boobs were in, mm. and I went to a psychic who told me that they could. Um, make my boobs bigger well they could manifest boobs for you they could manifest like noel edmund's universally ordering your boobs yes so i went to get them i paid 90 pounds and i went and sat in this this woman who sort of i can't even remember what went on but she i left away i left with the cd and i've still got the cd and my now husband basically when i was dating him i it was in my mini and he'd borrowed my car to go to the shop and in the on the cd it basically goes you because you're meant to listen to it for 28 days in a row and then your boobs will get bigger and i obviously got bored because just didn't it was a long long i think they're relying on the menstrual cycle doing something to your boobs in that 28 days (laughs) and you go oh yeah yeah (laughs) that'll be right and that's why it didn't work yeah anyway so and he basically took my car and he came back not with you would say he come back with massive knockers (laughs) no But he came back and he was like what the fuck was that and he basically he started driving the car and it was this woman going your mind is a really powerful thing. Your breasts are getting bigger. They're swelling. They're swelling. And it went on and on for ages. She's now not practicing anymore, funnily enough. But I have still got the CD if anyone wants to borrow it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I used to love sidekicks. That was kind of my, this is what I'm going to do in life, apart from the boobs. And then I felt like, yeah, I can get on with it. In that, but that was another thing. It's really hard to explain now. There's a reason that, you know, Russell Grant was a massive celebrity um, and a sort of, you know, strictly contestant back in the day because that was the other thing. We didn't have much we could find because it was all print media or the limited broadcast options. Yeah. And psychics and mediums were really massive. Yeah. Because it was the only, it was, it, they just were and they were just all over the place and everyone had one, didn't they? Like all the publications had one. Heat didn't have one, did it? Did it have a psychic? No, we had horoscopes. Um, we didn't, we didn't have a, high, a psychic. I mean, I probably was one at some point. I expect I was probably like pretending to be, yeah, of one. Yeah. I think we did have a pretend one. Miss, oh, septic peg, I think we had instead of mystic, <laughs> mystic peg. I think we did have one for That a sounds bit, like yeah. that came out of a few beers. <laughs> yeah. Down the pub. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Namaste, motherfuckers. What would you pick as your life-changing namaste motherfucking moment? I have to pick the moment I met my husband, and that is because he was in a reality show called Shipwrecked, um, 2007. I was working as a features editor at Heat Magazine. Our editor at the time was like, we've got five pages to fill in features. What are we going to write about? And all of us, it was like Love Island is now. So all of us girls were like, uh, hands up. Um, can we, let's just, we were watching Shipwreck. Can we just do something on the Shipwreck hunks? So he said, okay, let's do your top five Shipwreck hunks. Um, each of you pick one you fancy and write about, write a little bit of blurb about them and we'll give them That's a, a nice of the week. 
I read about one of the other ones, not the one I actually ended up marrying. <laughs> I read about this pretty boy called James. Anyway, that's that sort of started the heat and shit wrecked love affair. And so we started doing loads of stuff about them. Then when he came out of the show, I was sent off to interview these five shipwrecked hunks, of which he was one. Um, and then that's the rest is history. He was actually dating someone on the show at the time, so it didn't happen straight away. And he's nine years younger than me as well, so I never would have considered it as a serious um serious match uh but yeah we kept bumping into each other and then he 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 asked me out several times and I thought I'd, I really didn't take it seriously at all I was like I'd made a new resolution to not date so many younger boys I think and I thought okay I'll go out with Ben Lunt he's asked me so many times I'll just go out with him um yeah and then he took me um lover's leap bungee jumping <laughs> And how was that? That was well. The first thing we had to do, he didn't tell me where we were going. Drove me to Windsor, and, and then we, the first thing we had to do was write down our age and our weight because that's what we had to do. Terrible with date. I was like, oh, there's a there's a bird over there. <laughs> um, I got really really pissed, so pissed that he had to phone, go through my phone to find who my flatmate was to get my address and I tried to weave through my jeans and he said it was the best date you'd ever had. So yeah. Was... <laughs> well, if anyone wants any date, I wonder where I've been going wrong, Lucy. I'm still single, but now I know what it is. Piss myself, get yes. drunk and go bungee jumping. <laughs> Hadn't even thought of any of those things. So they're, they're on the list. And you guys got married eight years ago. Yeah. 2014. I can never remember now. Nine but years yeah, ago, we, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's, um, it's funny. Cause you just, I mean, I do believe things happen when they're meant to happen and I would never have considered, you know, I just never would have thought, oh, when I was watching him on Shipwrecked, oh, he's going to be my future husband. I used to love Shipwrecks. That's one yeah. that a lot of the younger listeners won't know. What's it like? You must get a bit of an insight then now that you're married to an ex-reality star because what's, what's he gone on to do? Because I always think it must be weird when you're in one of those shows where you're all over absolutely everything and everyone's in love with you and then life goes on when you come out. It's a bit different now with so much sort of social media but in 2007 different world really for reality contestants 2007 was very different he had my space that was it and he's gone back to being a builder so he only went on it because back well played then, we all want to end yeah, up married to yeah. a builder lucy that's far <laughs> yes, better than exactly. some dickhead off a reality show <laughs> yeah want builders so, and plumbers yeah exactly so he went back to being a builder he's got an identical twin and his identical twin really reap the rewards of him being in a reality show let's let's just say because he there was kind of two of him roaming the country yeah (laughs) um did any women become go hold on a minute yeah (laughs) i just met you i just was with you last night in london how are you in glasgow saying you've never met me before (laughs) and what's your favorite joke i am shit at jokes i was trying to think about what my my favorite joke um is knock knock who's there Boo. Boo who? What's the matter? Why are you crying? That's the, that's the only one I know because that's one that my kids my kids tell their friends. That's, they can just, just about remember that one. But yeah. I think I've got, I'm going to try and do a knock knock joke that my kids used to love. Um, and forgive me if this goes badly. Right. So knock knock. Who's there? Interrupting cow. What? Oh. What? So wait, yeah. do it again. Knock knock. Who's there? Interrupting cow. Oh, interrupting cow who? Moo. Oh, <laughs> very good. That's one for that your four-year-old for later. Yeah, I, didn't, I didn't play it very well. Yeah, okay, I'm not I'm very good at um, Everyone hates this question on the podcast and comedians are much the worst at it. You'll be pleased to know. We're, not, we've always like, I haven't got any jokes. Yeah. Um, but also I always forget how to answer. If someone does a not-not joke on the podcast, I usually yeah, well, forget. Like, like I just did. Yeah, I forget what my bit is. And that because I'm also thinking, am I meant to laugh yet? Yeah. And then I realise, no, because they haven't done it. Um, and if you could give one bit of life advice to anybody listening Lucy what would it be okay I've got two I'm I'm constantly writing little quotes and thinking and putting them on my phone so there's one that I always have on there which is always be the best version of yourself which I think came from Vivian Westwood actually because I'm in her and I'm reading that in her book and then there's another one which kind of goes with the side hustle conversation which I just is sort of burning away at me and it's life is too short to be um, tugging so- along someone else's ship which I think is kind of a bit of a motto in terms of make sure you carve stuff out for yourself and do stuff for yourself Namaste, That was Lucy Cave 
Do check out her brilliant podcast, Back Then When, with Keith Lemon. It's a right good laugh and very star-studded. And there are links to that and all the other good stuff in the show notes, as always. So that is it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Please do rate us, recommend us, tell everyone you need about us. We love the fact that new listeners keep coming into the pod. And we will be back in your feed next Thursday, as always, when I'll be talking to broadcaster Rachel Burden. You know, there is a sense of Monday to Friday. I'm sort of pretty on alert through the week. I'm sort of constantly consuming news and all of that pretty much all, all through my waking hours. Namaste, motherfuckers, was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hansen and Karusha Dami for Pod People Productions, with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Namaste, motherfuckers. Pod people.